If a successful colonization is to divide and conquer, an answer to that has to be reconnecting the pieces they are trying to divide. This podcast attempts to hold space to connect the pieces of Palestinian society because it is a dissolution of Palestine across the world that calls for spaces to reassemble the people. So grab a cup of shay or kahwa and let's have a conversation. This is Connecting the Fragments. and I'm having a conversation with the brilliant Hatem, who is a leader and a pillar in the Chicago organizing community. Today, we are talking about Palestinian resistance and liberation. We will situate this conversation in the grander themes of the show with existence, resistance, and overall fragmentation. Welcome, Hatem. Thanks, Ed. I appreciate you having me here. I know you, but for the sake of those who are listening to us right now, can you tell me a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am a Palestinian American born in Chicago and spent most of my life in the city. Um, My parents are, my deceased parents are both um, immigrants from Palestine, uh, a village called Jeeb, which is equidistant from Ramallah in Jerusalem. Used to be part of the Jerusalem municipality before the 67 occupation and then after 67 it became it became part of the ramallah municipality my folks came here my father in 1960 my mother in 1968 and my siblings and i were all born here my my folks were activists and organizers on some level themselves with the arab community center in chicago which is the precursor organization to the arab american action network where i am now currently the executive director so my mother was a cha- chapter president of the Union of Palestinian Women's Associations at one point. My father was in the leadership of the kind of the governing board of the Arab Community Center. The rest of us, the the family, my siblings and me, kind of learned about Palestine through them, through their eyes and the eyes of their friends and and colleagues, and comrades. And you know, it was always a part of our lives. I always tell the story of how my folks were here for. My father, at least, was here for 23 years before he bought any property. And I think that that is something that happens to a lot of Palestinian immigrants or refugees in the States, at least at that time, because, you know, they always thought they were going back. You know, this idea of right of return being like a collective right and a national right is also a very, very individual right. And uh, and they all thought, thought they were going back. They were here only temporarily. And so it took a really, really long time before they realized that, like, hey, this might be more than temporary. We need to put some roots here. So I was kind of born in, in that kind of family. The other significant part of my upbringing, I think, is that my folks were from the progressive kind of left tendencies in in the Arab political landscape, influenced by the Nasserist movement, influenced by the Arab nationalist movement, influenced by the the Baathist parties. So, you know, those those are the original left in the Arab world. All of 
today's Arab left, whether it's in the Arab world or in the diaspora, comes, you know, comes the, the theories and the ideology and everything comes from those formations back in the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they, they were influenced by that, too. So we we're very, very lucky. You know, El Jeep is a small kind of conservative village. Not very many people there would be considered to be from the progressive section of the of the political landscape or left by, by any chance. And I was lucky to have two parents who were both from there. So that's why, you know, we kind of grew up in a secular home, in a, in a progressive home. And, you know, it influenced at least, you know, it influenced all of my siblings for sure. But it influenced me probably the most in that, you know, I wanted to ultimately be, a, be an organizer myself. Coming from such a rich background of community organizing, because your parents were heavily involved in the community, and being a community leader here in Chicago for as long as you have been, tell me what it means to you. Talk to me about how you got into organizing work at a deeper level and never actually left. You know, everybody has their you know interesting stories of how they end up doing what they're doing. Um, yesterday, I was on a phone call with one of the leaders in the in the Black Lives Matter uh, organization in Chicago, the Chicago chapter. We were on a phone call after close of business, you know, which doesn't really mean anything in our world. But I kind of made a joke and I said, oh, I'm sorry that we're talking at, you know, whatever it was, 7 p- 6 p.m., 7 p.m. I know it's after close of business and you, you probably have no work left to do the rest of the day. And she started laughing. She laughed because she understands this world the way I do, which is that, you know, kind of you, it starts, your work starts when you wake up in the morning and it ends when you go to bed, to be honest. And I kind of, I always wanted to have a job like that. It sounds a little bit strange, but it's true. You know, I, I think when I was in, in school, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I, I started becoming a little bit more active than I was in high school. So I'll tell you, I was always would be probably described as as theoretical, you know, I wanted to educate myself about certain issues, um, especially about Palestine. But I also studied the Black Liberation Movement in this country. I studied Irish liberation in 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 the north of Ireland. I I studied South Africa and apartheid there. And so, like I, you know, I knew the liberation of Palestine is you know kind of part and parcel of the liberation of all oppressed communities around the country around the world. And so I wanted to do something around that. But in high school, you don't really understand what that means necessarily. I saw it around me. Like I said, some of my parents' friends were the leaders of the Arab Community Center. They were the founders of the Arab American Action Network. They were some of the top organizers in the entire country. Um, and they became you know, friends and mentors of mine. But you know, I, I always knew I wanted to do something like this, but not really sure what it was. And so after college, I still did not have a career path for about a year, year and a half after I came home from school. And so I reached out to some friends of my parents in on the Southwest side of Chicago. And I realized that the same Arab community center that I used to come to as a kid. And so when I got back, I I went to those friends again and I said, listen, you know, I just want to get involved in the community somehow. And they said, well, you know, here's an opportunity. The Arab American action network has, a youth director position available. So I interviewed for the job. I was hired by the executive director at that time. His name was uh, Shada Kostandi. He had come from the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, he didn't last very long after he hired me. 
which, you know, I, I regret a little bit even to this day because I was forced into kind of administration in the organization, even though I was also doing organizing, but I wasn't just freed up to do organizing exclusively. I also had to do all this admin work. I had to learn how to fundraise and write grants and balance budgets and write reports and all this sort of thing. In retrospect, it was helpful because I, I gained a lot of experience and skills and knowledge. But at the time, I was like, I just want to be an organizer and I don't want to write reports kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, but that's essentially what happened. I you know I moved into this. What I wanted to do was was work for liberation, whether that is the liberation of Palestine, whether it's the liberation of Arab young people in the southwest side of Chicago, liberation of black people on the south side of Chicago. Like I knew that that's the kind of work I wanted to do. And I realized I could do it in the context of this work in this CBO called the Arab American Action Network. And, you know, that's that's exactly what happened. And I get the job in 1999 and the Intifada in Palestine starts in September of 2000. You know, I was basically thrown into the mix immediately. Within days of the beginning of the Intifada, there were dozens of people meeting in our center, in our Merkaz, every night for for months. It was the place where we were kind of the, the central location for the organizing around the Intifada at that time. And I, I had no experience doing that work. I had no experience as a public speaker. I had no experience with media. I had no experience organizing protests now you know it's it's what it's what we do it's what i've been doing for over 20 years and and you know i think we're pretty good at it at the time like i was really thrown into the fire and i was learning on the fly and there were a a number of people around me who were very very helpful they're still i consider them my mentors to this day But, but there wasn't a ton of support because a lot of the my parents generation of organizers and activists were were not really active and were not organizing any longer. There was there'd been a, a huge vacuum between the end the beginning of the Oslo process in nineteen ninety three up until the Intifada of two thousand. So a bunch of us came onto the scene as relatively new organizers and activists and kind of learning on the fly. It was an incredible experience like that is what we talk about when we say an organizing surge. There were protests on a daily basis. There it was media work that was happening all the time. There were educational events that we had to do, or, you know, fundraising even for humanitarian aid. You know, this was this was real community-based grassroots organizing that I was learning on the fly. Of course, I had some theory, but of course, there was a lot more theory and, that I had to learn, and and I have over the years but that that was the experience that said hey listen you know this is this is what i want to do because i think this is the way from the diaspora from the united states from this city called chicago that i can help liberate uh our people how do you see how you fit into fragmentation which fragment do you feel you belong to if you feel like you belong to a fragment at all and that's in the context of understanding that Palestinian society has been fragmented over the decades as colonization and occupation and and all of these things have continued to remove Palestinians from the land and push them out into other areas of the world. In, In the discourse about the Palestinian people, 
there's an understanding that there is a Palestinian people in the West Bank and there is a Palestinian people in Gaza. And then there is another Palestinian people in the 1948 territories, you know, what is now called Israel. And some people even say that there's another Palestinian people that are in Jerusalem that's separate from the West Bank and from the 48 territories. And then there's a Palestinian people that is living in refugee camps. And then there is the broader, wider diaspora that are not refugees or maybe refugees, but not living in camps. And those people are in the Arab world, of course, and they're in Europe and they're in Africa and they're in Latin America and Asia and the United States. There is this concept of them being fragmented. But again, you know, for me personally, like my consciousness comes from this perspective of Arab nationalism, even though there was a bunch of different organizations that had slightly different understanding of what Arab nationalism is. You know, I come from that tradition generally. The other tradition I come from is the concept of the Palestinian people being indivisible, that we are part of an indivisible nation, meaning a Palestinian in Chicago is the same as the Palestinian in Ramallah or in a refugee camp in Lebanon or in the slums of Paris or London. So there's that, that there's a little bit of the contradiction there, understanding that there probably is a feeling of fragmentation for some people and that there's a, there's a political reality about Palestinians in all these different areas who have different, you know, somewhat different conditions, social, political and economic that they need to deal with, but that generally the path to liberation is the understanding that we're indivisible. And the reason we say that and the reason I believe it so strongly is so that nobody like the corrupt Palestinian Authority can say that we represent the Palestinian people when, you know, they're only representing Palestinians in the West Bank, for example, because those are the ones that elected them. Prior to Oslo, when we were at the, the height of our national liberation movement in the 70s and, and the 80s when we had, the, you know, this incredible organization called the Palestine Liberation Organization that, that was the true, sole, legitimate representative of all Palestinians everywhere. It represented all of the different social sectors. We had, you know, a, a women's committees. We had youth and students committees. We had, you know, agricultural workers committees and farm workers committees and, and uh, you know, and factory workers committees and, and different political trends and uh, all part of one body that was representative of us all, you know, people did feel unity. They did feel like they were part of a single entity called the Palestinian people and then a single entity that represented us, represented us called the PLO. And so that's why kind of the theoretical and the ideological guides me more than emotional understandings of the world. And so because that's kind of how I function, I, I don't feel the same fragmentation that maybe others do. I recognize it as a as a political reality on some level, but I don't feel like I am a person who is fragmented. And I don't feel like I'm even representative of a sector that's fragmented. Like I feel strongly and we as a, an institution, meaning the United States Palestinian Community Network, which I helped co-found in 2006, and uh, I'm a member of the Chicago chapter currently and also a member of the National Coordinating Committee. Our organization really, really pushes strongly for its members and all of our, our supporters to kind of, you know, understand these concepts of indivisibility and recognize them and uh, and uphold them. 
that's what I do as an individual, and that's what you know I, I try to to help the the organization do as an institution as well. I really appreciate all of that context and and clarifying all of that. Talk to me about the unique qualities of the Palestinian population here in Chicago. How might it be different than other parts of the Palestinian collective, even in the states or in Palestine? And so, you know, the Chicagoans are, um, you know, there's a competition in the United States <laughs> about a number of different things in terms of the Palestinian community. Like, where is it biggest? There's also about which is more, which is most influential in terms of, you know, politically, which is most inf- influential. And the, where, where is the center? Where is the hub? All of those questions. And so, you know, most people would probably acknowledge, even though I don't know the exact numbers, I believe that Palestinians in Chicago are the biggest Palestinian community in the United States. Um, and I also know that all of the national organizations, most of the national organizations over the years from the I'm talking about from the you know post 67 occupation to today, most of them have had their, their kind of national offices, their hubs in, in Chicago. The, there's a unique community there that is, is large, that is very experienced in terms of organizing, that has a lot of tradition and history. And, you know, and, and it's 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 unique. I mean, people in, in other parts of the world know of, you know, the organizing in the United States generally. They know of the organizing historically in Chicago specifically. So, you know, I think in general, like the Palestinian community in Chicago is like the Arab community generally in Chicago, that in Chicago and, and its suburbs, it's still very a working class community, still a lot of merchants. We have a, a good level of, of education, kind of the, the the generation that was born here. Many of them went, went to college and are, are professionals. Now there has been, you know, kind of white quote-unquote white flight from the city and into the suburbs and our institutions have followed you know most of the palestinian organizations now are based in the southwest suburbs as opposed to chicago itself that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of poverty in our community there is it doesn't mean that there isn't an economic devastation and there isn't the other political issues that other oppressed communities and other communities of color deal with racism and lack of access to services and and to you know affordable housing and healthcare and all of those sort of things we we you know we're dealing with all of those things as well but we're also a large experienced community that has a lot of its own institutions and because of that you know the the community is probably a little bit better off than uh, than others you know there there are places people can go when they need help when they need support there are village associations all across chicago that represent all these t- tiny little villages in palestine and you know whether they function as clubs only now and don't have much political power is not even the the issue the issue is that they're there they're, it's a it's a social safety net for people and uh, and it's been here f- that way in chicago for a, for a long long time so I, you know, I, I still think Chicago is the hub for Palestine organizing and, you know, for institutions in the United States. Most of kind of the national conferences that happen or happen here also. And, you know, obviously the Midwest, easy to travel from both coasts and that sort of thing. But it's also, again, because of the infrastructure, I believe. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know who the first Palestinian was who came here, but they were like, uh, Chicago. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> right. So going a little deeper into all of this, 
what do you think are the connections between the work that's being done in the Chicago community to the work that's being done in Palestine? What are the responsibilities, the possibilities, and the limitations of doing the work here in the States and specifically Chicago? Yeah, so I, I think this, this, again, speaks to not to the concept of fragmentation, uh-huh. but to the concept of like the political reality. So, and, and we say this all the time, USPCN says this all the time, which is like, we all have specific and, you know, disparate responsibilities, where, no matter where we are. The, the resistance, for example, in Palestine, in the West Bank, in Gaza, in, in the 48 territories, in Jerusalem, wherever you happen to be, refugee camps, in prisons, the political prisoners, all of that resistance that happens there on all those different levels is totally different, has to be different than the resistance in in Chicago, for example. So, you know, we, we talk about that all the time. You know, we, there's nobody's asking us to try to replicate what it is that our you know siblings are doing in Palestine. Their resistance to Israeli occupation in the belly of the beast face to face with the with the criminal the Zionist criminals is of course different than it would be here. And so but it's but it's absolutely connected. You know, clearly the boycott divestment sanctions movement started and launched in Palestine by Palestinian organizations and institutions who then said we want the rest of the world to take this on. So the rest of the world meaning all of these people across the world who are in support and in solidarity with our people from all different sectors, faith-based and corporate and community-based and and, uh, and all of that. For, for example, we as USPCN participate in BDS campaigns. We believe that we should be challenging the Zionists at every turn. So whenever the Zionists are trying to go out and promote promote themselves or promote their country of Israel as being like the beacon of democracy in the Middle East and they whitewash their crimes and all of that sort of thing, we challenge them. They do it through through culture and art and sports and we go and protest their culture and their art and their sports and we say, we're not going to let you normalize your your occupation and your crimes. That is the responsibility of responsibility of our organization, our community in the United States. We also need to educate, of course, our own community, help build power within our own community, help train other people to become organizers in our community, which is what we do with young people, with immigrant women, with workers and others who are part part of the membership of USPCN. And, and you know, we help to train as organizers and, and activists also. And then you have to educate the broader public. That means doing do mainstream media outreach and doing public events and public protests, you know, those are really, really important. You know, some people always are questioning those tactics uh, at times. What does it help to go and, you know, uh, chant in front of the Israeli council? You're just yelling at a, at a brick building. The thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of people in Chicago who see us when we're down there with our signs and with our flags and hear us, our chants and our speeches and get a leaflet from us. That's an important educational opportunity for, for the broader public. And if we believe that, that the United States and its imperialist policies are you know, as responsible for the crimes against the Palestinian people as the Israeli Zionist government is, 
then we have an even added burden and an added responsibility in the United States in the belly of the imperialist beast to to fight and to struggle here and to and to chip away at you know U.S. imperialism here. It's the reason why we unite so closely with the Black Liberation Movement, with the immigrant rights movement, with workers' rights, with women's rights, with all of these struggles that are social justice struggles generally, because we believe that all of those struggles within the United States will continue to chip away at U.S. imperialism and chipping away at U.S. imperialism is helpful and supportive of uh, our people and us winning our liberation in Palestine itself. Um, that's the kind of, in a nutshell, the strategy <laughs> um, and how it, it connects our work here in the United States with our work in Palestine. That's a pretty big nutshell, I will say. Uh, I agree. I do agree. And I appreciate saying that. Um, I can't help but think of the, the idea and, and part of the theme and, and the core of this work that I'm doing is the idea that existence is resistance. How would you describe your understanding of the phrase existence is resistance? And how might you apply it to your own life or how might it already be applied? Or quite simply, what does it mean to you? You know, I of course, I know that slogan um i know even you know the the folks who founded an organization in new york with that slogan as its name yeah and you know i like it i think it's it's uh it's something that it's an attractive slogan i think people gravitate towards it i think it looks cool on t-shirts <laughs> i might have but, a t-shirt that says it. but you know i yeah i mean it's it's not listen i i'm not going to critique it or begrudge people who you know, want to use it in in their work. I recognize what it means, and on some level, on a lot of levels, yes, the it, just existing, just staying there, just fighting for your land and for your home, not being pushed out, not leaving, living in under that kind of repressive regime is in and of itself resistance. I totally recognize that. I just don't want people in the United States, especially, to kind of look at that slogan and say, well, we're resisting by being here. And that I'm not quite sure I agree with. You know, again, I don't begrudge people what they do and what they say. Not everybody can be an organizer from the minute they wake up until the minute they go to bed. I recognize that. But we all have a role to play in the resistance. Probably the one person who I would consider my first mentor out of the what we would consider the elders. He was a, a contemporary of my of my father's who passed away many years ago in the mid two thousands. His name is uh, Ali Kosset. I was in my fourth or fifth year of organizing, and I was super super intense to the point where. You mean unless, you're not intense anymore? <laughs> unless everybody did as much. It was maybe it was a little bit of arrogance, too. I'm not sure. But it was intensity for sure. And it was like, unless everybody did the same amount of work that I did and the same amount, put the same amount of hours and the effort as I did, then it wasn't enough. That was my perspective at that time. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, whatever. I'm pretty I'm still pretty young and I was brand new to the work. And he came to the center one night. We had a Depka troop that was training that night in the center. So they were practicing in one room, and a few of us were in another room 
having a meeting or a discussion, and I think I was on my computer writing something, whatever. We get back. Somebody ordered some food. The the Depka troop joined the rest of the folks that were in the center and, you know, just shooting the shit, having fun, talking a little politics, talking a little society, that kind of thing. Yeah. And and then all of a sudden, like, you know, he, he kind of he, – he took the floor, and, it, and he began – talking to these young people who didn't know who he was you know we introduced him as you know this this person who is a leader on the national level of the of palestinian organizations for decades in the u.s but uh you know that that didn't mean that much to to everybody they didn't really know have any context for what that means and he said something that night that i'll that i'll never forget and that you know it it, uh, it really really affected me he said everybody has a role to play here the the Depka troop is just as important as the person who is giving a speech in an anti-war protest, just as important as the person giving the interview on CBS, just as important as the, the person writing the statement, just as important as the one leading the protest. And that changed a lot of how I thought about the work. And that's why I bring it back to this idea of existence as resistance, like we have responsibilities in our resistance here in which we each have a, an individual responsibility that ultimately becomes a collective one. Yeah. But you can do something that will chip away at the Israelis and the Zionists and the U.S. imperialists and the Arab reactionary countries. You can do something every day that will chip away at them so that we can win our liberation. And and that has like guided me ever since. Then I realized, listen, nobody has to be a 24-hour day organizer. Not everybody has to do that. There are some people that need to do that. You. <laughs> and, and I want I want to help find the new generation of people who are doing that, but everybody has a role and a responsibility. The the mother does, the father does, the journalist does, the engineer does. We all have a role to play. It's it speaks to the, the the concept of the indivisible nation. It speaks to the idea of the institution of the PLO and how it represented everybody and had a, a place for everybody in all the different social sectors. And it speaks to today that people are doing all kinds of incredible <coughs> and new uh-huh. and creative things with podcasts and with Twitter and with Instagram and with videos and audio and all of that sort of thing, like everything helps and it's all part of this national liberation movement. And so that's to me what resistance means. It's more than existence for for us here, especially. Um, It means that you have a role and a responsibility and not everybody has to have the same role and responsibility, but that we all have roles and responsibilities that that uh, that we can play here so i've kind of hung on to that idea as someone who's done work with you for a few years now and you know have have heard you say like everybody here has a role to play so many times at one point that was so radical and shifted your entire perspective i didn't know that story so thank you for sharing that but that's something that has stuck with me and everything that i've done in my entire approach to um, doing the work around Palestine or just existing as a Palestinian woman. Um, right. You know, and sometimes, you know, existing or existence is resistance for me is 
being the only Palestinian in a room and being challenged because I'm the only Palestinian in a room and having to, you know, hold my ground and, you know, educate folks or uh, challenge someone back. It's been, you know, just walking down the street, wearing my hatha, wearing my kufiya, and, and people giving me dirty stares and being called uh, terrorist bitch, you know, and things like that. And just going, this disrupts the space around me, me existing in this space, the way I am as a Palestinian woman, disrupts the space around me and creates this tension. And understanding just in itself that those small moments, all the way up to the big moments, right, where you're doing organizing or at a protest or um, doing the work in, in, in an organization from the little to the big, like each of those things create that tension and create that sense of resistance. And so um, I actually wrote that question and have situated a lot of my work with that idea in mind because of the work that I've done with you and the way that you've inspired me to do work. So just to give you that context. Yeah, no, I, I, that's, that's, you know, that's really interesting and cool to hear. And, and, uh, you know, what you're describing in terms of your individual experiences, you know, that is, I believe exactly what people talk about and think about when they, when they say existence is resistance, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't have the same experiences, Mm -hmm. of course, as other people, when it comes to stuff like that, <laughs> um, I did go to a campus where I was, you know, one of only a few Palestinians, but I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't part of the resistance at that time, really. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I've, I've had to learn to be patient because I'm looking at my own, the trajectory of my own life, understanding that, like, I knew all the political line. I knew the, 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 theoreti- the, the, the theoretical elements of the struggle. I knew all that stuff in college. I just wasn't an activist or, an, or definitely not an organizer. I wasn't even an activist, hardly. When, when, it, I, when, I, when it finally became a part of my life and I was able to, you know, integrate the theory with the practice, you know, I was resentful of people who had not made that shift like I did and were not, you know, all in, so to speak. It took this person, Adi Kossid, rest his soul and it took you know so many other young people that i ended up meeting and working with over the years where i was like listen you know we got a lot of different skills here we got a lot of different experiences so much knowledge on so many different levels like let people do what they're good at you know and i think uspcn is starting to become a better example of that you know we 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 host cultural events you know we've got you know, a, a section of work for students and young people specifically. Uh, we're able to work with, you know, immigrant women as a sector. We have as our members and as audiences to our work, you know, the, the immigrant Arabic speaking population and the Arab American English speaking population. Like we do represent, I believe, a lot of different sectors. And we are the type of organization where like, hey, I can find something to do around Palestine, anything that I want to do, I could find it with USPCN. You want to be a part of cultural work? We've got that. You want to fight and confront the Zionists every time they go somewhere? We've got that too. You want to do educational work? You want to write? You want to do poetry? You want to sing? You want to, you know, play music? Like we've got it. We've got it all. And and I'm, I'm appreciative of, of this, this concept that that you're everything that we do and everything that you do and you know your life is 
part of this movement, even if you're not an organizer. It's a part of this movement, even if you're just, you know, in a in a classroom at DePaul University and uh, and having to, you know, defend our rights in front of 20 Zionist students. <laughs> Been there, done that. Next. Yeah, yeah. This episode is really a plug for U.S. Palestinian Community Network, just so you That's know right. this podcast supports and endorses. No. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is to really understand, right, the parts of Palestinian existence and experience um, that get lost in the grand scheme of settler colonialism, Israeli propaganda, and the larger materialization of oppression. I would like to know, what parts would you say continue to live? And when I say live, I mean going beyond existence. If existence is resistance, then living must mean liberation, right? What parts would you say continue to live despite the overarching dominant narrative produced by Israel and its imperial allies to extinguish Palestinian life? What do you say or what would you say give these parts life? The dominant discourse is that there's an occupying power and there's an occupied people. The occupying power, all it does is bring its military into our villages and the occupied people, all it does is, you know, duck into its home to avoid the military or throw rocks at it or resist it in other ways and is not able to, to live its life. This is a difficult one, right? Because I, I think that people in our people in Palestine and would say that like resistance is their life, is their is living. But they will also say, hey, listen, we have goals and aspirations like everybody else. You know, people are getting married, they're falling in love, they're going to school, they're studying, they're, you know, working on their land, they're selling their fruits and vegetables at the market. All this is happening while they are occupied and while they are also politically resisting. And so we do have a rich, you know, social and economic life as a Palestinian people. We are, you know, living and trying to live the way other people who are not li- who are not under occupation are are living. It would be a fascinating study to look at a community like ours that has been colonized for over 70 years and that lives under such a brutal brutal racist apartheid military regime and the fact that the people are still really really confident and happy and see a future uh, ahead of them yes there's there's a lot of mental health issues too there's a lot of depression economic depression and also you know mental health based depression but there's also a, a a huge section of the community that is living its life enjoying its family enjoying its culture enjoying its society and it's it's sometimes you know i would say it's sometimes a bit ironic and and really contradictory that a people like ours and a community like ours can find time and space to to laugh and be happy in a you know a day-to-day situation that doesn't really allow for it and you know and, and it speaks to kind of what our society is going to be like when we are victorious in our in our national liberation struggle people understand that there's a rich history of 
anti-colonial struggles around the world. We've we saw you know the 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 most beautiful example is Algeria defeating the French colonialists and winning its independence. Other Arab countries, Asian countries, African countries, all you know, the wave of the anti-colonial struggle. We're still fighting our anti-colonial struggle. We have rich examples of you know victories across the world. We also look at you know, at least I do. I look at you know the example of China and Cuba and Vietnam as struggles against colonialism and and national liberation struggles there. And so. What I know is going to happen in our struggle is that we are unified as a Palestinian people against U.S. imperialism, against Arab reaction, and against, you know, Zionist colonization. Once our unity helps defeat Zionist colonization and, and freeze our land, and once we become independent, then that next stage of the revolution happens. The one that is the social revolution. The one that says, you know, this is what I want my society to look like. You know, pluralistic. And that has equality for all. You know, uh, it's not a theocracy like Israel is. Everybody, regardless of religion, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, of, of uh, color of skin, is living together in a, in a society, you know, where all the resources belong to all the people. And so, you know, I, you know, that's what I know is going to happen, which also means that I know that we're going to be battling internally at some point for that society. And I look forward to that struggle because it means that we've defeated the, the colonizers finally. And then we have that next level of struggle with our own community to build our own society. And so, you know, the Palestinians, because the fact that we've dealt with all of this oppression for so long, is probably going to be an independent country that is not going to have any patience for any other oppression after defeating the oppression of the, the colonizers. So, like, the society that we're going to build in Palestine is going to be a beautiful one, and uh, and one that, you know, if we don't get an opportunity to live there, then maybe our children will. I hope so. So essentially, there's layers to this stuff. <laughs> lots and lots of layers. If resistance is a necessity for survival, liberation, and social justice, right? Would you say that there is a negative side to resistance culture? And, and, and if so, like what have been some negative instances you've maybe witnessed or experienced yourself? So, like, kind of building off of everything you just said, where you're uh-huh. like, there's layers to this, right? Once we get through tearing down, you know, this colonial structure of Israel, then we yeah. have to, like, turn internally and do the work, right? And so, like, resistance work is always, is, is about a necessity for survival. It's, an, it's about liberation. It's about social justice. But would you say that sure. there is maybe a negative side to resistance culture? And some of these things could be, like, you work 24-7, right, in organizing, in doing liberation work. That's not for everybody. What about, you know, like burnout, different things like that? And to give more context around the question, it's just, it's so embedded in this idea of being Palestinian, right? And when you have an entire people, no matter where they, they live in the world, who have this idea of resistance as a part of their existence, 
it can be so tiring it can be like you like you said like the mental health the physical drain all of that and so I'm not saying that Palestinians everywhere shouldn't resist I am just saying that you know sometimes understanding how that's affected us as a people can help us understand how we can approach the the problems or the issues that might arise from constantly having to live in in a state of resistance so to speak yeah i think it's a legitimate question you know i i don't know if i have any real insight uh in it i i think the only thing i will say the best way for me to answer it is to say i think it's it's definitely something that takes its toll on a community and it has done that for generations in palestine for sure it has taken a toll on organizers and activists in this country as well and not just organizers and activists but you know palestinian families generally because we are we we live the experience of our people back home as well yeah. and so yes it affects us here the way i'd like to answer it is to just say that you know, uh, I'm happy and we're very lucky that we have a community here. You know, not not all Palestinians in the United States have what we have in Chicago. Um, not all Palestinians you know, have a dozen or more institutions and village associations and um, places where they can go to be around other Palestinians, places where they can go and feel to feel safe, to feel validated to spend time with others of your nationality, others who share your history and experiences. You know, we're, we're lucky that we have that. Anybody who walks into the city will be able to find a community. And that's very, very helpful. Not just those who are doing the work, the organizing work, but just the, the, the community in general. Because, you know, it's you have your family and you have your extended family, and then you've got this other thing this ex, you know extended family times 10 and this this community that you're a part of and uh and we're lucky that we have it in in chicago i definitely feel those same sentiments when i think about the community here in chicago and and the different organizations and and just i feel that you answered my next question and that i don't even need to ask it which would be which was how do we overcome and maneuver around those negative aspects? But I feel like you answered it so beautifully in stating that the answer already exists within our community. How we we offset any of the negative aspects of doing the work, or the, but the pressure and um, the stress that comes from just existing as Palestinian, right? And and the idea of resistance work. The answer really lies within the community, and it really relies within our relationships with each other and the ability to express ourselves culturally and and to have that connection because it feels like we're connected to palestine we're, we're connected to back home so thank you um, yeah no problem i think i think that that's uh that's exactly why i i believe we're you know we're, we're lucky to be in that in this in this place and you know and i'll, I'll say uh, let me just say one last thing I also am a little bit uncomfortable sometimes when we when we talk about our conditions as Palestinians being so much different than other people's conditions. Yes, we have the you know this this long-standing protracted protracted war 
for our national liberation that we're, we have with the Israelis. And, and I recognize what that does to a community and to a, a society for and, it, and what it has done for, for, you know, seven and a half decades. I, I totally recognize that. But, you know, there are other communities. We are, are not the only community that is oppressed, that is occupied, that is having to deal with all of these challenges as a community that is fighting and resisting. And I think, you know, that means that the question is is important, but the question is not exclusive. We don't, you know, the Palestinians don't have exclusivity around this question or this issue. We don't have exclusivity in terms of resolving it either. You know, the black institutions and communities and, you know, families and extended families are providing the the same kind of uh, solutions and panaceas to these challenges as our community does for us. So, you know, we, resistance is difficult. It's challenging. It, it, uh, it's sometimes troublesome, but there are a ton of other movements and a ton of other communities that are, that are struggling in the same way that we are. I, I don't think we're alone in that world. A lot of, the work that we do is very much intersectional. I'm specifically trying to unpack how Palestinians, you know, experience all of this and understanding how they, how we're situated within, you know, these bigger problems, bigger issues, issues that are, are for sure bigger than ourselves and, and affect so many other communities of color. So yeah, definitely. And thank you for addressing it. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. That being said, you're a really well-respected and well-known community leader in Chicago. And I would say you're even well-respected and pretty well-known in Palestine. You've been doing the work like this for so long. Talk to me about how you see Palestinian activism versus organizing around Palestine. And what would you like others to take from those understandings? It's important that people understand that there is a difference between activism and organizing, first and foremost. Right. We all can be, should be activists, meaning when when there's a petition to be signed, when there's a protest to go to, you know, when there's a, a letter to be written, something that we can do to support Palestinian rights on some level. All of us Palestinians and beyond should do that every time that we have the opportunity. But there's sometimes been there's sometimes a conflation in the understanding of activism versus organizing. And those things that I described are activism. That's not necessarily organizing. Organizing is really, really difficult, difficult work. I'm not saying that activism cannot be difficult work. Sometimes it is. But it's not the, it's not the same in that the organizer is the person who <laughs> works within an institution to develop strategies and tactics for action. They are the ones who organize the protest that the activist attends. They're the ones that, that organize the letter writing campaign that the activist signs. They're the ones who train 
the youth and the students and the workers and the immigrant the immigrants and the other sectors of the community and society to become organizers themselves to lead the campaigns themselves to lead the institutions themselves so it's two different skill sets it's really two different <laughs> for lack of a better term job responsibilities you know and and we need to do a better job i believe in our community of respecting the role of the organizer and looking at people who are who make a career as as organizers whether they make that career as an organizer in a paid position or in an unpaid volunteer position that we should really uh, understand how important those folks are in our community and we should praise them and we should support them and we should donate to their institutions because you know i joked around with family members before and other times i've been very very serious about this where somebody would make you know would ma- would try to make a joke thinking it was funny and say something like oh well you know people before you have tried and you know all of us have heard this before like what you know why why do you think that you're you're going to make a difference why do you think that you're going to win the liberation of palestine people before you have tried for generations and all that sort of thing and my answer to those folks is listen do you believe in the, the liberation of palestine and they invariably will say yes are you able to be out organizing people to make plans to try to defeat the enemy and win our liberation? No, I really can't do that. Well, then what you should do is say thank you to the organizers that do it, and you should write a check <laughs> to their institutions, and that's what we need from you. We don't need you know, your, your disparaging remarks about this work because over the years, even in the history of this country specifically, if we wanted to just use this as an example, the civil rights movement, like... We are not an equal society, of course. We don't live in an equal society today, but we have won a lot of things because of organizers and activists and people who build mass movements to win certain demands and to get power to cave. And that's what organizers do. This is a tradition and a history that is is rich and has a lot of heritage and culture. Things don't just happen in the streets because there's a policy that is racist or that is oppressive and then people just like randomly march into the streets you know the the civil rights movement was led by institutions and by organizers the palestine liberation movement is led by institutions and organizers and political parties and things like that and so that's the you know what people what people should understand in terms of the the difference between activism and organizing and why they're both both very important but you know one is the the sustenance the base of your movement, whatever that movement is. So my last question, you've been at the heart of resistance work for many years. Do you see a future for Palestinians where resistance is no longer necessary? Where existence doesn't mean any kind of resistance, but that we simply just get to live our lives? Yeah, that's a tricky question because it speaks to what we talked about earlier when we when we said that, you know, there are people in our own families, in our own communities, who, you know, wonder why we do what we do, wonder why we have dedicated our lives to organizing our activism. Those people are the ones who say, yeah, just live your life, you know, raise your children, find a good job, make money, buy a house, have a nice car and live your life. And I think people aspire to that for sure. But I also think that life is 
you know, full of struggle and life is, you know, full of dialectics and, and contradiction. And that even after we defeat the colonizers and their, you know, U.S. imperialist patrons, we have to still struggle internally to build the society that we want. So, yeah, I think eventually the ideal situation is that we just get to live without resisting. But I believe that if you, for one minute even, let your guard down, (laughs) those forces of reaction will try to defeat you. And I think it's important that once you once you've been victorious in your revolution, you have to understand that the the, the enemy and the counter-revolutionaries are not going to stop. Mm. Um, and so, you know, whether those are the, the counter-revolutionaries from your own people and your own society or or the, you know, the the colonizers and the and 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 the imperialists are trying to reverse, you know, your victory in your in your revolution, like uh, you, you have to be conscious you have to be steadfast you have to understand that this is a lifelong struggle um and you know i don't want a country that is liberated from the israelis but is exploited by the palestinian bourgeoisie for example right Uh, that you know we trade one oppressor and one exploiter for the for the next and that's not what i don't think our people want either which is Um, why arab nationalism is so important correct yeah i mean you know on 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 some level like the idea that the palestinian revolution can lead to mass uprisings and rebellions in other parts of the arab world is is true but it's the, the reverse is also true i mean we we've seen some very exciting and interesting developments in the arab world in the last decade right egypt and tunisia and 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 other countries in which the masses that we always said were part of the revolutionary forces, the masses that we know are on our side as Palestinian masses, we expect and we need them to defeat their um, oppressors as well. And you're right; those the oppressors in the Arab countries are, you know, the the exploiters of those Arab masses. None any bigger or worse than the Saudis. So, yeah, Arab nationalism plays a role in which this idea that the masses of the Arab world will rise up against their exploiters, even if those exploiters are also Arab. Um, And, you know, ultimately, we may have to do that as Palestinians once we've liberated our land from from the colonizers. And I, you know, and that's a that's a natural progression in the in the stages of of your liberation of your national liberation struggle. I don't. Some people might listen to this and say, whoa, 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 we don't want that. We don't want civil war. And I'm not describing civil war. I'm describing as a a struggle within your society after you've won your liberation from the colonizers in which you say, we're not going to accept the exploitation of somebody else, even if that somebody else is a Palestinian as well. We say clearly that the three-pronged enemy is Israel and Zionism, U.S. imperialism and Arab reaction, the Arab reactionary countries, the Arab big capitalist class that is controlling the means of production and exploiting workers. Um, you know, that's that those people are our enemies as well. And uh, and that's where some of the forces in the Palestine liberation movement get it wrong. And uh, and I think the that us, you know, progressives got it right. And, and that's why we're, you know, our perspective 
is the one that is the one that that people fear the most. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of the left in Palestine. This doesn't get uh, publicized very much in the United States, uh, especially if you don't read the Arabic language press. Um, it doesn't get publicized very much that, the, you know, the left in Palestine is has been devastated in the last 10, 15, 20 years because the Israelis have targeted it. Because I believe that the Israelis know that, that, you know, that sector, section of the Palestinian liberation movement is is the one that has the answers. And so they, they've assassinated a number of the leaders. They've arrested a number of the leaders. Um, they've worked with the Palestinian Authority to repress a number of the leaders and the organizers in, in, uh, in amongst the left. And, uh, you know, I, I think they recognize as much as anybody, as much as we do, that those people have the answer. Yeah. Um, you know, those people are the are the ones who are the natural uh, descendants of the, the the Cuban revolutionaries and the Chinese revolutionaries and the Vietnamese and even, you know, more recently, Venezuela and and other struggles in, in Central and South America that are bringing, you know, progressive values and thought back to back to the society. Thank you so much for being a part of this conversation in this episode. I really appreciate you taking your time out. Um, yeah, of course, of course. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for our conversation today. Remember, each of our experiences are valid and each of us are needed. We each carry a bit of Palestine in us. No matter where we reside in the world, we are all a part of the collective. Until liberation and return.